Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. My first guest this morning, a man who rode over a hundred winners as national hunt jockey, a sphere in which he was doing extremely nicely, thank you, but he switched his attention to the flat and he never looked back. He rode a first Group 1 winner in 2009, is it really 10 years ago, that Lord Shanachill for Carl Burke won the Prix Jean Pratt, and then his career really took off. Somebody then figured out that this was a man who could be champion jockey quite feasibly. He set about that task with gusto, and he achieved this feat in 2016, after which he was made first jockey to shake hand and arm back to him, one of the prize jobs in the weighing room. He is now firmly established among the uh, top echelons of riders in the country. He is, of course, Jim Crowley. Jim, good morning. Morning. Uh, welcome to the Luck on Sunday studio. It's been a, a pretty remarkable career to date, and I don't think we're even halfway there, are we? I hope not. I hope <laughs> there's plenty more to come. And you're now firmly established as a, a big race rider, a big day rider. You came off the back of a probably a frustrating day for you yesterday at Ascot, but it must have been an amazing race to be a part of. It was fantastic. Um, you know, the atmosphere, you know, when, when Enable came back in, it was just unbelievable. And uh, even the reception Crystal Ocean got and walking back in, even Salloween, all the place horses were getting clapped walking back in. It was just a remarkable race to ride in. And there are some horses that are just a, a little bit special. And I know we're going to spend quite a bit of this program debating what she did or didn't achieve yesterday. But it is that. That emotional impact is quite hard to, to put numbers on, isn't it? It's quite hard to sort of qu quantify, really. Yeah, I mean, she is as good as Philly Mare I've ever seen. Um, I've saw the back of her uh, before with um, Ulysses and the King George mm. two years ago, and uh, she's very special, um, you know, and we've been very lucky to see her. And, you know, obviously Prince Carlos had uh, Frankel and... Um, well, you know, in an era we've been very lucky with some superstars. Uh, you, you mentioned Ulysses. You, you developed a fantastic rapport with him a couple of seasons ago. Would he be the best middle distance horse that you've you've ridden? Yeah, for sure. I think um, I think when he won the Judmont that day, he was he was special. You know, he had Churchill and everybody was off the bride, and he was just absolutely cantering. He was a class act. Um, you know, and he, he was a bit unfortunate that when he met Enable, it was soft ground and the weight for age was such a big disadvantage for him. Uh, I'm not saying he would have eaten her, but uh, certainly it was on her terms. But um, yes, and it was uh, he was a super horse. Yeah, he might have put it up to her like Crystal Ocean was, was able to do yesterday, but I think everyone was really captivated by it. And it's, a, it's interesting to know what implications it could have for the sport as a whole, I suppose, for the rest of this season when she turns up again and again and who knows, maybe even next year. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Um, this obviously the arc is their goal now. Um, whether she'd go to York or not, I don't know. But um, you know, just like I said, enjoy her while you can. And for you to be to be a, a regular part of all these big race days now, do you still count yourself fortunate, or do you now sort of take it as read that that's going to be the case? No, I think you've got to, uh, you know. Um, I wouldn't say I'm fortunate that I'm in this position to ride in good races and uh, I think whenever you get an opportunity to try and grab it and take it with both hands really but um, I certainly don't rest on my laurels and you know good hard, good rides are, are hard to pick up you know especially spare rides in those big races. And you were part of that raft of, of national hunt jockeys who, who switched to the flat and it's gone extremely well for, for an awful lot. PJ McDonald being the obvious other example at the moment, but Graham Lee's done it very successfully. You've done it more successfully than anybody else. When you did it, however, it wasn't considered a fashionable thing to do. It was slightly off the wall. What made you do it? Um, I, do you know what? It was just my sister-in-law, Amanda Perrett. Um, I used to ride out there in the summer, and 
I remember she said to me, you know, um, could you could you ride a few maidens for me? And, and that was it. I just I started riding in a few maidens, and I think um, I, Alan Munro got injured one year, and Rod Millman then approached me and asked me to ride some of his horses, and I went from having sort of being not that many horses to ride jumping to having access to riding over 100 horses on the flat mm. so it was a bit of a no-brainer um, I had to make a decision whether I was going to be a dual-purpose jockey or go back jumping and um, I was very lucky that in my first year I, I think I rode a group winner for Patrick Chamming's the Brigadier Gerard Stakes um, and then it was just a no-brainer really after that I just set my stall out to, to go full, full on the flat. And I know when Graham Lee's interviewed for example he always says I could ride as many of these winners as you want, group winners or whatever, but I'll never get the same buzz as I did when I was in the wearing room at Cheltenham or whatever. Do you understand what he means by that? Yeah, I do. I mean, it was it's it is a different buzz when you're riding jumping. Um, you know, when you get you, you, you get into ride. I was lucky enough to ride in like a Grand Steep to Paris and races like that, and that is just it's it's brilliant. It's a it's a real buzz. Um, the only thing that can sort of compete near that is riding it somewhere like a Breeders' Cup or Chartin or something like that. That's that's when you walk out onto the track and you get a bit of a buzz, yeah. And why did you go down the jumping route in the first place? Was it because that, that was your background, essentially? Yeah, my parents trained point-to-pointers when I was younger and I was probably a bit too heavy for the flat. I was around just over nine stone when I was sort of 16 or 17 years old and um, I just wanted to be a jump jockey. Um, that's all I ever wanted to be and, uh, yeah, hence that's why I went down that route. Were you a thrill seeker as a child, as or as a teenager? Yeah, yeah, and no, I did, and that's you know I remember I used to go to the point to points and used to go and stand down by the last fence and watch the jockeys falling off, and used to think that was just like they were just the best thing ever, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to be like that. And growing up, Richard Dunwoody and people like that were my were my idols. Because you were attracted to the danger. Yeah, I think so. You know, I always grew up hunting and things like that, and, you know, I always, this is what I wanted to be, jump jockey. I remember, we've talked about this a few times, but I remember when we filmed the, the, the racing, the car racing down at Goodwin a few years ago, and there was a whole team of you driving, and you at the time were probably the least high-profile jockey, because there was Ryan and Frankie Dittori and what have you, and you were winning by miles. You're, I've never seen anyone so so plugged in to a, such a so hairy pursuit as you were that day. It was like a, what's yeah, a complete I'm quite adrenaline. competitive. Yes. Um, anything, anything like that. You know, once I set my mind on doing something, um, I'm a great believer in, uh, you know, if you think you can do something, you will. And it's like when I went for the Jockeys' Championship, I, I convinced myself I was going to do it. Um, and I think once you get in that frame of mind, I think it's a, it's a big help. And then you cut. You just can't see any outside interference. All you're doing is focused on that prize. That's right. I mean, um, it's, it's it's. I remember Kieran Fallon saying, hey, "Riding in races, eighty percent of it's in the mind, you know." And I think if you if you really believe you can do something, I think you'll, you'll achieve it definitely. And so, when you were in that championship season in, in 2016, and you had a seriously tenacious competitor against you in Sylvester, who'd already won the, the, the jockeys' championship and is is absolutely brilliant at amassing winners. Was there was there ever a moment that you didn't think it would happen? No, um, I was I was I remember going into Goodwood. I was I was 16 or 17 winners behind, um, and we just got on a roll. And it was a, a remarkable month. I think it was September. We had like 46 winners. Um, and it was just, it was just eat, sleep, race, repeat. And I, I just, um, I'd convinced myself I was going to do it. I could just imagine myself sort of holding the trophy, and you know, it was, uh, it was bizarre, really, and how it worked out. Forty-six winners in a month was more winners in a month than any other jockey has achieved ever before or since. I mean, that is quite remarkable. You must have been exhausted, or were you not? I, I was exhausted. I, I remember going to Redcar the day before Ascot. I didn't have to go, but I, I was already committed to rides, and I went. And I slept all the way there, and I slept all the way home. I was literally absolutely exhausted. And I think, you know, we talk about the Jockeys' Championship nowadays, and I don't think people realise the amount of work that has to go in to win it. Um, so the likes of Ryan and Frankie, and although people would love to see them going for the Jockeys' title, it's so much racing now. It's It just takes such a toll on you. Even with the concertina season and the championship season as it's structured now definitely i think obviously because it's so concertina now that you try and cram more into it and like we can only ride at nine meetings a week 
but that's still a fair amount. I mean, in the old days, you could do two meetings every day, um, but we can only do two and nine meetings now. But uh, yeah, it, it certainly took took a toll on me. The next season, I was I was I knew I'd done it. Did it give you the? So we're just seeing you receiving your your trophy now, and you received it from from Nick Skelton, who'd won the the Olympic medal. Uh, did you feel the sense of satisfaction that you wanted to feel having won it? Huge amount. I mean, it's. Uh, I never thought I'd be champion jockey on the flat. Uh, you know, when you set out as a jump jockey, I thought you know you had great aspirations of being a champion over jumps. But um, I felt that I'd achieved something worthwhile with my career it was a it was a great fulfillment um and it gave me a lot of confidence um and you know i loved every minute of it i'd, I'd love to do it again at you know um it's 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 a great buzz something i really enjoyed doing and for your children just about old enough to really appreciate it as well the, the girls yeah, they they did. They used to look at the newspaper every day, and you know you'd, it was uh, the press. It made a real good thing of it. Obviously, Sylvester was riding stacks of winners as well, and we went toe to toe, and um, they 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 enjoyed it as well. And they took a re- t- took a real interest in it. So you talk about your determination, and clearly the the need to have that mental strength in order to in order to succeed in a in a challenge like that. Do you think your route to where you got helped you in a sense that it wasn't an overnight success? You didn't just get it handed to you on a plate. I think so. I think. Um, I sometimes wonder what what would have happened if I'd have gone straight to the flat when I was 17 or 18. But I think you know your your life takes unusual paths, and mm. I'm so glad mine went down the jumping route first. And I appreciate everything I have now, you know, on the flat, and uh, try not to get too cocky or big-headed or anything like that, and just just appreciate what I've got. Uh, I've made some great friends along the way jumping, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. I'm delighted to say that Jim Crowley remains with me, the man who has seen the back of an able in two King George's, first on Euler season yesterday on Salomon, and joined by senior writer for the Racing Post, Lee Motta, said a regular here on Luck on Sunday, but I doubt you've ever been in here uh, buoyed by such a sort of giddy sense of delight at what you've just seen. Yeah, it was sensational. And I'm not talking about the, 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 the pimped-up pastries today. No, yeah, we, they're very pimped. It's like chocolate brownie-type creations there. Um, yeah. yeah, it was sensational. It was one of those races where... You, you do walk away from the grandstand um, with, a, with a real sense of knowing that you've seen something special and knowing that you've seen something that just makes you feel better mm. about everything, really. Um, I, for me, it was comparable to watching Sprinter Sacra's second champion chase, something that really just gives you a feel-good factor um, that stays with you for the rest of the day. Uh, and I, I thought it was a sensational horse race. I thought from start to finish, it was utterly absorbing. Um, from the those early stages that I thought had echoes of Grundy Bustino, with the pacemakers really taking on from the start, with Shamey Heffernan very cleverly trying to seem to keep Frankie wide on the track, Frankie then having to adjust his game plan through the race. And then down the home straight, that pulsating, gripping battle between those two horses. Two out, it looked like Enable was going to go clear. Then Crystal Ocean rallied in the furlong pole. You couldn't work out who was going to win. And both horses giving their all, mm. really trying their best. It was just a fantastic spectacle. Now, you were so excited by this. I was. I don't deny it. That you, you took to Twitter. I did. And you tweeted mm. thus. Yeah, I did. It's coming. It is coming. It's worth it when it comes. Here we go, yep. So many echoes of Grundy Bustina, but surely even better. Yeah, now the surely <laughs> even better. <laughs> this is a. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It did reel a few. I mean, I think the problem is. Real Jim McGrath in within about what, two minutes. We had a what with about three A's in yeah. there. Um, I, I think it's clearly it's impossible to say surely even better. That was, that was me on a high. Um, but I, I think it was. I think it did have those echoes. Because of the pacemaking angle, because of the, the frenetic early pace. And because of that home straight duel. And there's just part of me that thinks, although I was only about three weeks old for Grundy Bastino, so the, the, the extent of, of live insight I can offer from those days is, is minimal. But well, we've all seen We've the all seen it, we've times. all read about it. And I just wonder if there's part of me that thinks maybe we, we cling on to that 1975 King George 
to a, to an extent that maybe isn't warranted, and that to say what we had yesterday was just as good or even better mm. isn't actually sacrilege. It's a perfectly fair statement. The thing that struck me, uh, uh, thinking about the comparison between the two races, Jim, was that then it seems, looking on, and I think we're roughly the same vintage, but then in the Grundy-Bustino time, those pacemakers were, sac- were, were sacrificial lambs. And those horses were there to win on that day, and that's all that mattered. <laughs> Whereas you fancy now people are just a bit more circumspect about the way they campaign their horses. Yes, the day matters, but we've all become a bit more efficient about the way we train on race horses, haven't we? For sure. I mean, obviously, I remember what, uh, watching the um, race on YouTube, and I just couldn't believe the pace in Grundy yeah. uh, Bastino's King George that day, and I was just like, it's crazy. Um, like I say, nowadays they ride a bit more of a race, and obviously... John Gosden will be thinking about the arc with this William. What I found fascinating yesterday was Frankie only used his stick once on her mm. yesterday. Mm. It, it was a brilliant ride by Frankie Dottori because he was, you know, he, he, he didn't go for everything on her. Um, and James Doyle on, on uh, Crystal Ocean as well was, he used the whip very sparingly as well. So um, it, it, was a, it was a great race to watch. Uh, it was a great race to be a part of. I managed to get onto the back of an able turning in, and I thought I didn't think I was going to win, but I thought I'm following the right one, and hopefully she can tow me. And next thing, she just got unbelievable. So that even took you by surprise. Even what you knew about her already it took you by surprise that you were completely left behind. Well, I remember the same thing in the arc. I was I followed her in the arc. She was I was drawn one, she was drawn two on Ulysses, and I she went round. She's very keen that day with Frankie in amongst them. But and literally, as soon as she saw a bit of daylight, the, the, the acceleration on her was, was phenomenal. She, she is a phenomenon. The way that she's built this remarkable CV is extraordinary. And yesterday, the first day where she's actually returned to a venue and won because her previous triumphs had been at all different race courses. Her versatility, her courage, and not to mention her class, quite extraordinary and set her apart as a modern great. She's trained by John Gosson, who's on the line now. John, good morning. Morning. Uh, so much upon which to, to reflect yesterday. Uh, you were kept extremely busy in, in interviews throughout the, throughout the afternoon, but I suppose there's one thing you don't mind, and that's talking about another Enable victory. Quite, quite extraordinary. Yes, it is. She's, uh, she's actually about 25 yards from me, having a bit of grass grazing right now. She got back last night and ate all of her feed up. So uh, it's interesting uh, what Jim was saying. She... she um, she races more like an old pro now, rather than the, the youthful exuberance of a three-year-old. Yeah, she's a little more measured in everything, I think. But uh, she seems in good order this morning. And uh, Mr. Dottori came round. He, he looks pretty tired, actually, more tired than her. He described himself yesterday, John, as being emotionally exhausted by the by the whole experience. Can you can you identify with that? Yeah, I think so. I think he, well, you know, despite the cheery front, he feels the whole weight of responsibility upon him, and he absolutely adores the Phillies, so he wants to do things right by her. Interesting enough, he said she wasn't particularly happy with the soft ground down down the hill into Swinney Bottom. He said she wasn't really quite where he wanted. He wanted to get in, couldn't get a position. He went from four wide to three wide, dropped back off right to two wide. You can't go around Swinney Bottom three and four wide, that's for sure. And I think to that extent, uh, you know, he said she came good. As soon as she started climbing out of Swimming Bottom, she suddenly locked back on with it, which is probably why he came from third last right up to contest the lead so quickly at the head of the street. struck me that yeah, much has been made of the fact that Frankie barely touched her with the stick. What do you think was going through his head there? Well, I think it's maturity as uh, 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 a jockey. Uh, and when you really understand the horse and know the horse you're riding and you know they're stretching and giving you everything that that's you know that's why he gave one flick to get her stretching and then it's sort of just waving the stick and I, I think he probably felt he he had it under control and um it depends i mean we, we're not getting into a stick debate now definitely but, not you know you, you want to keep a horse balanced it's very important uh, and, and of course uh, the stick is an important you know to me it is a key ingredient if your horse is balanced and stretching, you're not really going to do much good by giving him a slap. You're much better stretching with the horse and keeping them balanced in, in that situation. He knows it well. She was in full flight. He wasn't really going to disturb that. It's probably the long and short of it. 
When Crystal Ocean really started digging in and grinding in on the fence, was there ever a moment from your vantage point that you thought you might be in trouble? Yeah, very much so. I think uh, Stouty and I are probably feeling the same thing at that critical moment just uh, at the one market and just uh, around that point that he was, and as I said before on Monday in the interviews, he's a magnificent horse and he's, he is all heart and talent. Um, I thought he was singly impressive in the Prince of Wales at Royal Ascot. And I, I, I could see this, this wasn't going to be, you know. And he's down there on the rail. He's had a nice run through from a good draw. He's been beautifully ridden and placed. So uh, it was bound to be a battle. And yeah, but that's what top top class racing is all about. And uh, when you get something of that nature, a duel, literally a duel, the whole length of the, the straight there with everyone shouting, that's, that's, that's the best of our game. But uh, it certainly was a Cheltenham rule. And you mentioned that she's racing more like an old pro now. Does that mean, do you think, that we're unlikely to see one of those displays that characterised her three-year-old season where she was drawing right away from horses and really putting them to the sword? Do you think she's, she knows that she well, just you, needs you to know, do what she has to do? She's put the field to the sword, but so is he. Yeah. You know, I think they are the two best, as I said before. We had, we got the Derby winner and, his, and his, uh, the horses with him. You've got, obviously, the best older horse in, in Europe, and, and the world, you've got the best one coming out of France, and she's the best uh, female race mare. And you, you know, they, they are showing a clean pair of heels in the rest of that field. The three of them, let's be clear about that. So, you, you know, when you're beating slightly inferior opposition, uh, it's a whole lot easier to, to be skipping away. But that was uh, that was a race testing every every sinew. And I, I know, John, that you've you've had so much experience. You don't like getting carried away with these things. But would it be fair to say that she's taken you on a on a more interesting and satisfying journey than any other racehorse that you've trained? Yeah, I think so. And I think, uh, you know, as everybody knows, she, she's come back from, you know, injury surgery last year and then from a, a week of sickness between her Kempton race and the Ark. And she's just shown such amazing mental strength, which is why I, I slightly alluded to the, the, you know, the fifth set at Wimbledon. And it's 12 games all. It's the sort of Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. You know, these, these guys are so mentally strong. And, uh, and both she and uh, Chris Lothian showed that. That, that, that. that is so much a component of, of what a great athlete is. And we know that the thoroughbred can be an innately fragile creature as well. And there's a, a real a poignant uh, sense of, of grim irony in a sense that, that she continues apace and we, we tragically lost Sea of Class this week the filly that had given us such a great battle in the arc last year and, and the horse that you trained to, to such great effect last year, Roaring Lion, he's on the critical list down under just having had, had colic surgery it, it, it does give us a, a reminder that these horses are, are flesh and blood and, and have their own innate fragilities Yes, I mean obviously in the case of Sea of Class Uh, it really is, but uh, that's we're, we're never we're always remembered just reminding how ephemeral life is. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. That's a, a, a much better way of putting it. And, and um, you know, obviously, we're thinking of her. And, and the news of Roaring Line, it sounds it sounds perhaps more positive than it, than it was uh, last night. I know we're going to get an update from David Redford very I shortly. I know nothing about that, so you've rather shocked me with that news. I'm, I'm so sorry, John. Yeah, he he, he mm. suffered he suffered a, uh, uh, an attack of colic last night in New Zealand. Um, and they've, they've suspended stallion duties in New Zealand for the time being. And I think the plan is to get him stabilised and then to bring him back to, to Tween Hill. So apologies for, for surprising you with that. Yeah, just, I just, that just, just dropped yeah. this morning. But, uh, well, well, he's be... a lovely horse. He's, he's, he's mentally strong. He got, he got better as the season one, bigger and stronger. So, and so if he can come through this one, it's a long, long flight down there. Uh, he had an amazing season last year. He was campaigned very boldly and he answered every call. How, how bold are you inclined to be now with the... With, with Enable from here to, to the end of 2019? Well, she'll tell us. Um, she's very expressive, and uh, she'll tell us what she wants to do. I mean, whether we, we talked about it yesterday, actually, and Teddy Grimm talked as well, whether we go to York or whether we just go straight to the Ark. But, uh, you know, I think we'll start making those decisions in the next week. And if she does go to York, would you, would you favour your route of the, the Yorkshire Oaks to the Ark, or, or would you like to have a go at the, at the Judmont? Well, she's in both races, but so you know that would be a later decision. You're training for the same meeting, so that makes it fairly easy. But uh, I think the key thing is whether she goes to York at all, or whether we just 
you know, do the the other thing you can do, just freshen her up and bring her up. Uh, she runs well fresh. Bring her up to the ark without having taken uh, any risks in going anywhere else. And, and looking ahead to to Goodwood this week, you know, Stradivarius, another horse who's essentially public property now, much much like Enable is, um, but a horse probably you can you can enjoy uh, maybe more sort of sh- in a more sort of shackle free way. Right, yes, yeah, so I was with Mr. Nielsen yesterday, with Bredham, and um, yes, you can. He's a horse that you can really enjoy this cup horses. And he's, he's been fantastic in, in the way he's, you know, fought his way through two seasons. Um, obviously, he carries a lot more weight here because the three-year-olds come into the race and they're getting a lot of weight. So we know about that. He wanted as a three-year-old. So, mm-hmm. You know, the, the demand of the race, uh, it will be severe enough on him, and I'm sure they'll probably... Put, make a strong pace of it, but he stays. So, you know, he's in great form. He's just been out here in front of me having a little trot and he's playing, and it looks, he looks, looks to be really enjoying life at the moment. So let's hope it goes well on Tuesday for him. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday in the company of Lee Mottisette, Jim Crowley. Jim Crowley was saying a little earlier on in the program when I was speaking to him that you know, a jockey's life at this time of the year is particularly difficult, especially if you're going for that jockey's championship. It's relentless and you need the sustenance and you need the right sustenance and the man who's been providing that to the jockeys for the last 19 years, courtesy of his mobile catering business, is Matty Stevens, who at one point was looking, uh, 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 looking after in the high teens of race courses, but is now uh, still looking after the jockeys at Ascot and at Taunton. Sadly, owing to financial pressures, has had to wind down the bulk of his business, but still hopes to be very much on the scene. And Matty, it's great to welcome you to, to Luck on Sunday. Thanks, Nick. This is just unbelievable to think that the, the man that makes the tea is on the Nick Lip Show. So thanks very much for the opportunity. <laughs> but but you, you are not, as Jim will tell us in a minute, you are not just Jim the man who just makes too the kind, too you're kind. not You're not just the man who makes the tea because it's absolutely crucial to a jockey's day that they get fed. What they want, but they get fed properly as well. Most definitely. And, you know, from the tea and sandwiches that we once had to what we've got today is absolutely unbelievable. Um, you know, the, to have gone to Stratford all those years ago and to have been in, in the position to offer the service and then the race course supplied the food and the drinks um, and then to have spoken to the valets back then, Tom and John Buckingham, and to, go, uh, to have gone and met Michael Caulfield at the Jockeys Association, which pushed me forward um, to the other race courses. It's been absolutely brilliant to think that, you know, I went from Stratford to, as, as you say, 16 tracks mm. at the height, um, 22 race courses in total, I think I've uh, had a day at um, before now. Um, and it's just been, been a wonderful experience. And it really struck me last night, you had over 100 messages from licensed professionals and jockeys saying, you know, good on you, mate, you, you, you've done so much for us over the years. And it's not, not just provided food, you've obviously been someone who all the jockeys can come and have a chat to in confidence and just away from the glare of the, of the spotlight of the race day. It has been totally unbelievable. I had to pinch myself, I almost felt that I died. It was like reading, you know, all these wonderful Living comments. Picture, it, yeah. it was, it really was. Um, and, you know, it's all testament to them because when I did start out as I say in in 2000 with the help of the Prince's Trust um, you know it was for for the jockeys because if I felt this was an area that I could offer so much to um, because I've got such a rapport with the lads having done a couple of years service at Stratford having a keen interest within the sport itself and having a a, a catering background so to put those three things together was just unbelievable in, in in a sport that I truly love so you know, it's, there's been many, many, many good days, and to have a day like we had yesterday was just unbelievable to see the two horses fighting out the finish in the King George. And, uh, yeah, the old adage goes, you are what you eat. In jockeys' cases, that can be a pretty confusing situation. Definitely, and I think um, we've got so much good classroom-based support now and so many good support teams um, the network with the, the, the Jockeys Association have put together with the University in Liverpool um, with all the helplines that we've got, with the nutritionists, with the psychologists, there's just so much available for jockeys today it's second to none um, unfortunately I suppose the downside is that the um, 
the food side of things has grown mm -hmm. um, from the tea and sandwiches that we once had to something now which has probably got 50, 60 ingredients in it. But unfortunately, the facilities perhaps haven't grown with it. The funding perhaps well, so hasn't, the, the hasn't the grown canteen with canteen it. Facilities, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And I think my whole assessment on it all was back in January when I contacted the courses and said I just recently sat down with um, my accountant and the numbers still weren't working for me, and they totally agreed. Um, was that the fact of we we need to try and do something to make the area the areas better to, to cater for, for, for the foods that we really need the jockeys to have. Because is, is that because you were having to spend more on produce, but you weren't getting the commensurate comeback from the race I, I think, yes. Basically, it was definitely down to the fact of the, the, the guidelines were increasing. You know, you're now assessed on um, three levels, gold, silver and bronze. And, and thankfully, at Ascot, you know, we achieved the highest award there uh, of the gold, um, which was rightful for Ascot. And obviously, that's something that I've prided myself on over the years. I've certainly um, done my very best in the timescales that, that I've had and with the foods that I've had available to me. Um, and the facilities that I've had available to me, but I just feel with the, perhaps the, the, the guidelines that we have in place now, it works better for their um, on-course catering teams rather than a one-man band like myself who have the necessary people to put that in place and to deliver what we need to deliver. You know, I'm definitely not, um, you know, de decrying the progress because the progress needed to be made, but I think perhaps the, 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 the progress that we've made in nutrition um, has been absolutely brilliant, but the facilities haven't really moved with the times. But, within but, within but, which you need to work. Which within, I have to, uh, yeah, yeah have, to, have to work, where it would work better from a race course kitchen, supplying the food, and unfortunately it's worked so well for me because I can drip feed it and deliver it as the jockeys want it, rather than it all coming across at a certain time. So it's worked well for me over the years on that basis. But unfortunately, it's just getting to that place that where we where we need it to be. But how important, Jim, is it for for you to have somebody like Matty who knows everyone, who knows everyone's different tastes, and yeah, it's not easy, is it, trying to cater for a bunch of jockeys? No, it's not because everybody's different, aren't they? And I think most definitely you must Jim. have a great memory because every you know what everybody wants, and if you're shooting off, you you might be going off down to Salisbury and you want to take something with you, and some of the tracks are supplying you know a meal, and you haven't got time to sit down and. So sit down and eat it. You want something, just jump in your car, go and eat on the go. And uh, Matty's not just that, he's been a friend to all of us as well. I remember meeting you at, um, I think it was Huntingdon the first time I met you. I 20 think, years Jim, ago. I think you toxed her. I think we, you know, we yeah. had many a chat on a, a lot of jump tracks. And I, you know, I, I certainly remember, I think, was it, um, what was the Italian race that you won? Was it the Grand National? Something the Italian like that, Grand yeah. National? Um, you know, one of the first big jump races and talking about that and stuff like that. And it was inevitable me, to me that Jim was going to end up being a champion flat jockey as soon as he turned to the flat. Cause he well, just, you should tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so strong. Well, but it got more than 33. No, exactly. You talked to us, and Matty could have put us in the right direction. <laughs> to, to be quite honest with you, I remember the discussion well, and it was just before Ascot and Jim come in, and we, we were looking through the, the people that had got the chances for the um, current championship, and we were talking through, and everyone was mentioned apart from Jim Crowley himself, and I think Jim Crowley was the guy that had started the conversation. So, you know, it, <laughs> it was inevitable that year that he'd, he'd done it rather well, hadn't he? Um, he, he, he tried, was trying to source out who the dangers were, but he was the main the main threat himself. So, you know, it's um, I thought it's he was been great. To be your friend. <laughs> no, without 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 a doubt, you know, it's been been a great relationship I've had over the years, and it hasn't been work. You know, it's been um, the actual race course daily stuff has just been absolutely unbelievable, and you know. Jim, Jim's right. I like to think what the lads are going to ask before they even ask. And I think that's the beauty of it. And as sad as it sounds, I think if I went on Mastermind, I could tell you every <laughs> single sugar that a jockey has in his hot drink, that's how yeah. sad Whether it is. it's five, six, so, or seven. seven. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, again, this is a nutritional thing that they won't like. But I think champion jockeys, certainly of yesteryear, they used to have five or six sugars in the tea. But that was the way that they did it. They probably wouldn't eat and get the energy from that. You know, the Kieran Fallons, the, the Tony McCoys, you know, that's, that's the way they lived. 
but yeah it has been about the individual service and probably you know I would always play it down that my my food wasn't really the best food on the race course because I am a one-man band and there's a lot to do and a lot to operate and I can only deal with with what I'm giving but I hope I've given the best service over the last 20 years because you know it as Jim says it's not just been about the food from my point of view there's been a lot of things that we've talked about and it's great to see careers evolve you know I've I've got to the point now where I'm getting a little bit worried if I get a third generation coming into the weigh room. I really have been there a long time. You know, there's been plenty of second generations, and I'm sure a third generation, you know, is, is not too far away. So, so to see the likes of Adam Bashitska go to America and Rachel King do so well from the amateur ranks in, in Australia, Australia yeah. which is superb, and I hope she gets her Shergar Cup um, debut at some point because I know that's a real dream of hers. Um, and, you know, the likes of Doug White, Mike Smith, Joe Moreira sat down with my little boy last year at the Shergar Cup and Dad said, he's a brilliant jockey, but he's not very good at Nintendo. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's li little things like that. And there have been so many things over the years. I said to you on the phone last night, Nick, you know, to have the late great Sir Henry Cecil walk past my tea bar and say, is that a crump and jam? I said, yes, it is, Henry. He said, may I have one? Yeah, please do, Henry. And five minutes later, he come back, he said, couldn't have another. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. You know, I grew up at Stratford Racecourse. It was literally on the back of me, so I spent many an hour at Stratford Racecourse, sat by the open ditch, willing jockeys at seven, eight, nine years old, fall off, fall off, fall off, so I could just go over, pick the whip up and the hat up in the old days and just, there you go, fellow type of thing. And then it progressed. It's like you at the point of point when you were little. Yeah. 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 The only thing is, I don't think I'll be getting a ride anytime soon. But, you know, it's it's that relationship that we've built up and I think because of I've struggled with the emotional eating side of things and there's so many areas that we can relate to and I think within racing I think that's the thing that we've got to develop more than anything is the emotional side of the eating I think there has to be a lot more research done in that and I think there are so many other key areas where we can aid the lads that are struggling with their relationships with food. So what food, how food alters your mind? Yeah, most how... definitely, because a lot of these lads aren't eating to feed the body, they're eating to feed the mind. That's the, the crucial fact of it all, and that's what it boils down to. We can do all the nutritional research in the world, and believe me, the guys, again, I can't emphasise what they've done at John Moores, and the lads, when they go up to them, and the trials that they've done with the food packages and everything that they've given them. And I have lads now that literally, Nick, you know, at one stage, the amount of money that I spent on energy drinks was astronomical. Was it really? It was astronomical. Now there are so many guys that are reverting to, the, you know, the original H2O, the sparkling water and the, the normal water. Which is much better for you. Most definitely. Most definitely. You know, and that's the, that's the key. Hydration, isn't it? There's so many of you boys that are sweating. Yeah. And if you can keep hydrated, it's, it's half the battle. But every single jockey has got their own different way of doing things. And that's the key. You know, we need to give them choices, Nick. And presumably for you over the years, part of the success for you and part of your relationship with the jockeys is based on working with them and not not judging them on their food choices because not everyone's going to be making most most definitely sensible or rational choices and and what you have got to do as well is you you, you you've got you've got to feel out and you've got to speak to the guys that you can see are struggling with it and you know um make them feel okay about their overeating at the times when they are overeating and they do unfortunately go and make themselves sick and stuff like that that's that's something that you know we are trying to get away from but it's very very difficult and uh, you know i truly believe that the only way we'll get away from that is if we do portion control the foods that are available to to the jockeys um it's been long been a thought of mine and a dream of mine that one day we would get to the science specific foods and it would be managed at a central base and it would be distributed up and down the the the, the, um, the country um, I think that's the only way really that we can manage this this area once and for all and for you you still got Ascot and still got Taunton I have which is brilliant which and is great I, I can't thank Chris Stickles enough and his team down at Ascot they've been superb um, and it gives me that passion and the drive that I've enjoyed and the rapport with the lads um, and I've obviously Bob um, Young down at uh, Taunton as well he's been absolutely brilliant and you know I did get a message on Twitter that said you've got so much good support why why are you giving it up? And, you know, it boils down to the fact of it's 
took me 20 years to realise that you can't make any money from it. And realistically, the food has come on massively in the last 20 years from, as I said, it was literally a few sandwiches, and they used to play hide the sandwich at Toaster, I believe, in, in, in yesteryear. Um, the guys I that won't used ask to you do what it. that was. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the likes of John Frankham and, and Bob Champion and people like that have said how the, how the team men used to hide them underneath the counter so that they could take them home if they weren't eaten. That's, that's the type of things that you were dealing with back in the day. Um, but no, you know, it, we, we've, we've evolved to where we are today and Ascot certainly, it's, it's like a hundred seater restaurant in there and, and Taunton have got a very good facility that they've added on in the last few years and, you know, they're both race courses which have basically said to me, look, whatever we need to do, yeah. we want to do. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. So much good racing to look forward to this week at the Qatar Goodwood Festival. Glorious Goodwood, as we know and love it. And one of the great features of, uh, of Glorious Goodwood in recent years has become the Magnolia Cup, chiefly because it raises an awful lot of money for, for charity, the Duke of Richmond's brainchild of a few years ago. And it will do so again this time. And a terrific lineup uh, going to post this year, including the racing post, Kitty Trice, who joins us now and has been uh, documenting this in an excellent video diary on racingpost.com, available to all members. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, Kitty, uh, welcome to the program. I said, uh, you're the only person who's got more words in, in today's paper than Lee Mottetag, <laughs> which in itself is, is an achievement. How's yeah. it all going? It's good. Um, it feels like it's come around so quickly. Um, it's only four days, which just time has fly flown by. And um, I'm going out to ride twice more at Pat Phelan's in Epsom just to get sort of my eye in even more. And um, it's going well, and I'm really enjoying it. So not long now. Just watching the diaries, you seem a pretty cool customer. As a general, you, you never seem to get too, too up, too down. Just quite nice, quite, quite calm and level. Just got the right temperament for, for I mean, the racing game. I've had to work on like I've done lots of riding before, not on racehorses. So the first time I actually sat on a racehorse was in February. Um, it actually has taken quite a bit of work to just keep calm and just carry on, literally, because. You've got to do that on a racehorse. I mean, they can pick up so quickly mm. your mood, your emotions. And um, I was quite nervous the first couple of times that I rode. And actually, it's sort of one time it didn't go so well. It wasn't anything mad. But um, I just had a chat to myself and thought, right, you know, you can make the most of this and you can sort of try your best and you just got to keep level-headed. So, yeah, hopefully that's coming across. But um, you you did compete to quite a high level in, in other disciplines, didn't you? Yeah, I did a bit of showing. Um, needless to say, my horse, um, Buddy, he's, not, he's no, nowhere near a um, racehorse. He's actually a cob, so it's quite a different sort of way of riding. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's similar in terms of sort of atmosphere and dealing with crowds and that sort of thing. I mean, I think Thursday will be a different sort of type of experience to anything else I've had, but um, I'm looking forward to it. And this is, is this your, is this your Magnolia Cup mount here that we're, yeah. we're looking at? Yeah, Alkitios. Right. But um, you have to change his name for yes, Thursday. Yeah, so what yeah. are, you, are you changing it to Racing Post Flyer or something similar? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I get to make the decision as to what his name will be. But um, yeah, he'll have a different name. So be excited to see what it is. And are you feeling the love and support from your colleagues? Are Lee and Co giving you all the right words of encouragement? Yeah, everyone's been so supportive from sort of donating to sort of just saying, you know, you'll be fine and stuff. Like, I've had the odd joke about sort of, you in it to win it, you know, Kitty will smash it. I'm just like, I honestly just want to enjoy the experience and, um, you know, just to get around and finish it will be a huge achievement. So, um, yeah, all jokes aside, I um, just want to do my best, really. I know I'm not doing a lot this morning to keep you out of the limelight, <laughs> but I guess you're fortunate in some senses in that there's a lot of quite high-profile uh, women in the lineup this year. So can you you be being able to be a little less kind of thrust yeah. forward than otherwise you might have been, which is probably yeah. quite nice, isn't it? Yeah, I mean obviously because I work in racing, like there'll be some sort of there'll be a spotlight on it from that angle. But obviously we've got Victoria Pendleton, Olympic champion and sort of Vogue Williams who's a model and you know there's different sort of pressure from them I guess in a sense so um but yeah it's, it's all good fun and everyone's great. And tell me a bit about the charity you're raising money for. So Wellbeing of Women so it researches sort of all sorts of 
issues for women, so ranging from pregnancies to gynecological problems, so any, you know, um, like ovarian cancer and that sort of thing, and they're sort of discovering new ways to find treatments and that sort of thing. It's so they just do a whole lot of it's across the spectrum, and it's an amazing charity. Now, Jim Goodwood's it's five and a half furlongs, isn't it, the Magnolia Cup? Now, it's it's not the easiest five and a half furlong track in the world. It is probably if you're on Batash <laughs> and you're and you're and you're a champion jockey with yeah. thousands of winners under your belt. But if you've not really ridden racehorses before, I mean, you just like you sitting there laughing. No, it's. Uh, I think um, the first couple of years it was on the used to get a few loose ones pulling up, didn't you? But oh, yeah. I yeah. think everybody's sort of really working now, and like you say, you're riding out and. Uh, but it's it's a great track. You run downhill, you know, yeah. uh, so you just have to watch the pull-up area because the, there's an exit just as you go past the line. Oh. And the first thing you do when you think you've done it, you relax. You no, think, oh, I've gone past the winning line. Next thing, whoop, you're on the floor and they're looking back up at them. But, um, no, it's, it's, you'll, you'll really enjoy it and uh, be a great atmosphere. And the, the old saying, most, as, as Robert Cowell always says to you, go down steady, come back quick. Yeah. <laughs> So speaks a trainer of sprinters. Yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's, a, it's a terrific experience. And I, I, I think, as you were saying, Lee, you watch it now with a slightly less trepidation than you used to. Yeah. So, I mean, they used to have the winning post right on the line, um, which meant that you'd watch the race sort of through, through your hands because that, that pull-up at Goodwood right after the winning post, even for professional jockeys, it's probably quite hairy at times. Mm-hmm. So in the old days, they used to go straight up Trundle Hill. Mm. So you'd almost have the equivalent of a an indoor um, sprint athletics track where you sort of you have them to, to bounce off against. Um, but now you're swinging right-handed. But fortunately, they were very clever at Goodwood and realised that mm. having had so many... Um, Move the winning line ...incidents, back. yeah, so it's only a half furlong pole, so Kitty's got loads of time to apply the brakes, um, take, you know, post the camera, she goes past the winning post, oh, okay. and then pull up. Now, the, the good news for Kitty is that the horse has actually won the race before that you're riding. Yes, but um, I'd just like to add that the lady who rode him, she's called Izzy Taylor, and she's ridden on the British team for eventing, so I don't pretend to be anywhere near that standard. So just in case anyone's planning on having a bet, I'm saying don't. So. And, and how has it been? I, mu- I must ask how it's been riding out for Chris Gordon, who's a very interesting character. <laughs> He's great. He's um, been so supportive. I... Um, I, I was quite nervous. I told him one time, I think the other week, that I was quite nervous about, you know, in case I did go faster than I wanted. And he's just like, Alcetius will pull up at the end. You know, he knows what he's doing. You know, if you can sort of keep him behind, great, but he will pull up eventually. And I did go probably a bit faster than I wanted, but actually at the end he did pull up. He's at that age, he's eight, where he sort of knows all the tricks of the book. So um, i just got to trust in him and sort of overcome my sort of normal reactions which is to be nervous I've just got to trust in him I think So you put yourself forward to it so there was a um, you all got asked at the racing post if anyone fancied the gig and you put your hand up Um, Yeah Have there been any moments in the time between then and now that you've thought what on earth am I doing or has it been a a pleasant experience Yeah there's been a couple of times so I've just been thinking what what am I doing Um, I've been speaking to my parents about it I mean my mum's quite horsey, so she understands, you know, the game and stuff. My dad, he's he's actually got into horses, um, but still, it's, he's still going to be quite nervous on the day, I imagine. And they've asked, you know, do you want to keep doing this? You don't have to. And I, I'm, like, I have been nervous, but I'm more, I'm more sort of stubborn. I was just like, I, w- I want to see it through right to the end because, you know, it's for a great cause. It's not about winning. It's taking part, and well, for me, it's not about winning. Um, and it's just, you know, a great occasion. So. See, I can sense that steely determination. You say it's not about winning, but come, come Thursday when you get when that when that flag goes down at the start, it will be about winning, won't it, Jim? I think so. I think, you, like I said, uh, it's a great opportunity, isn't it? You know, big crowds there and everything, and yeah. I'm sure you will be a bit nervous. But it's like once you're on the horse, yeah. you'll forget about everything, and you know you'll be concentrated on what you're doing. The build-up to it will probably be the most yeah. nervous for you getting there and yeah. and all that sort of. 
just before the race and in the paddock. But once you're cantering down to start, you'll be absolutely fine. That's the thing. I was speaking to um, Rosie Rodin last year. I've been messaging her a few times. She's like, if there's anything you need to know, just ask. And I've definitely asked her a few things. I hope I haven't been driving her mad. And um, I was just like, you know, a bit nervous about the whole build-up. What would you suggest? And she's like... Honestly, sort of the parade ring and the beforehand's the worst bit. You know, there's there's a busy atmosphere. It's crowded. Once you're on the horse, though, it's sort of like you you go into sort of game mode. I suspect that's the case for sort of um, professional jockeys as well. So um, I think the beforehand's just the bit I've got to sort of try and sort of deal with, and then it's game on. So just I think beforehand's going to be the hardest bit. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. My special guest this week is master of one of the most important training establishments in the United Kingdom. And indeed, in what has only been a relatively brief career, he's already set records. He was champion trainer in his first season with a license in 2014. He has already trained classic winners and he is marching towards an impressive total again this year. Fastest trainer in history to a 1,000 winners. He took over from his father uh, less than a decade ago. He is, of course, uh, Richard Hannan. Richard, great to welcome you to Luck on Sunday for the first time. Good morning, Nick. Thanks very much. It's taken me a little while. Few near misses. I've had people get married for the last three weekends in a row. Someone said to me, you've got another sibling getting married? Not this weekend, so I'm here. You are one of six, six yeah. siblings. All of them married now, some of them twice. <laughs> <laughs> and was it always, was it always predestined, in, in, in essence, that you would be sitting there and the licence holder, from, right from an early age, or, or well, not so much? I didn't really get into it until, until I learned to ride, which was pretty late, probably... 12, um, 11 or 12, and loved it. And I started going racing with my dad and meeting people. And, you know, all of a sudden it became a bit of a, you know, it's, a, it's not a club, but it's a bit of a society. But I was going racing from when I was very, very young, all summer, and loved it. Got to know a lot of people, and that's how I got into it. And then, obviously, my mum made me go to university because my A-levels were good enough. I think we were all shocked. But <laughs> then I went away to Canada and uh, Australia, and worked for Dad ever since, really. No one else would have me. You, <laughs> what did you read at university? Yeah, I, knew, <laughs> I did exercise physiology and geography. Exercise physiology and geography, yeah. that's an unusual combination. Okay, it's sports science, is <laughs> <laughs> what it was. But it did have a physiology sort of bit to it, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed university, not as much as I should have done. Um, all I probably did was get fat and get a student loan and get into debt, and had to start working at some time. Uh, was there any po a point during that time that you thought, well, actually, I could go and do something else? There, there is a wider world out here. I could, or no, was the racing the so seductive? There, there, was, you know, there wasn't a wider world. That was, that was the world I was in, and that was the way I wanted to go. And now you look back and you think, why didn't I spend a year working in a pub or working in the city? And look, a lot of friends that work in the city, and I think I'd have loved it. Um, it's probably quite a similar business, and I regret in some ways not doing it. And I see some, you know, people that have gone into racing early. A lot of them train as sons, and they've done the same as me. And you won't change them at that age either. But when you when you get a little bit older, you realise that there is a bigger world out there, and probably should have um, experienced it while I could. But I, you know, I don't regret it to a point where I'm angry about it. No, you know. But I, I can look at it, and in terms of my children, I love them to go off and see more things and what I mean even at this early stage can you sort of see what directions they might be headed well they, Eliza loves riding she's only seven yeah she might want to go into it and Jack he doesn't like riding so much but it's easier than walking and he has a bit of a you know he's a temperament and he's quite a funny little guy and I'd, I'd encourage them and I'd back them up in whatever they wanted to do and if they wanted to come into racing fantastic did you enjoy riding did you enjoy the riding side of it I did. I loved it. I wasn't very good. I had a few rides as an amateur, one of them around Goodwood, funnily enough. And, uh, yeah, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. And how was that? How was the experience of riding around Goodwood? Now you train so many winners there. Well, I think you get pretty early, you realise that it's not as easy as it looks. And you have a new respect for people that, that have ridden in races and how hard it is. And you see people criticising that have never ridden. 
And because it looks easy, it's not. You know, it's very different. When you're in your racing kit, as Jim Crowley would tell you, you know, your britches, your saddle, it feels like you've never ridden before. It's hard. And in, in terms of your attitude towards jockeys, has that made it different? No, I think, you know, a lot of, I'm friends with a lot of jockeys, always have been, always been, you know, very close to Hughesy and, and spent a lot of time growing up with him. And it's difficult for them, but they find it very natural and, you know, they're, they're all very good at it. In terms of my attitude to them is they have a job to do, a job which I don't really interfere with too much. I have my job, they have their job. My job is to get the horse to the races, fit, healthy, and once they get on, that's their job. And a lot of those jockeys are... You know, they're experienced, they're shrewd, they've been in the game a long time. Richard Hughes being the obvious example. And I guess you must have learned a lot of him when you were coming up together, essentially. Exactly. You know, I was travelling to the races with them a lot. And so you get to hear the, the idle chit-chat, the, the jokes, the sport, the seriousness, the dangers. And, yeah, and a lot of them, if they're good, they do get to be experienced. A lot of them have burnout, and that's something they have to deal with. Am I right in thinking that you've made the mistake of playing cards with the late, great Pat Eddery once. Yeah. Um. <laughs> My dad sent me home with him one day from York, and he, he gave me 100 quid. I thought, oof, that'll do. He said, I want to play cards with him on the way back. I was only 15, and so I sat down playing cards, won the first two hands, making money, and next thing I lost it all. And Pat, he took all the money, and his agent, Terry Ellis, he said, how much did you lose? I said, 100 quid, Pat. He went, 20, 40, 60, 80. Won't play cards with me again, then, will it? And put it in his pocket. And I was just getting ready to take it off him. And he took it all off me and put it in his pocket. And I thought, ah, oh, I shouldn't have put my hand out anyway. Oh, that's, that's magnificent. Yes, a valuable lesson yeah. to learn early on. Yeah. You mentioned that you, you thought that working in the city might be something that you'd have quite enjoyed or been quite good at. What is it about that sort of lifestyle that, that would have appealed to you? Well, I think... You're working in the city, it, or certainly 15 years ago, it was, it was, it was, it's not gambling, but it's sort of, you know, you're on your own and you have to take risks and you have to take a stance or an opinion on something and you have to, it's, it's about getting around the people and knowing how to sell something or not sell something. It is very, a little bit similar to what we all do in terms of racing now, you know, you're buying essentially something that has a share price, it costs 30 grand, you're trying to make that 30 grand into 200 grand. Mm -hmm. Okay, it doesn't work, you know, a lot of the time, but when it does, you sort of have to know how to deal with it, and I think the city's quite similar. Because there are people who sit in that chair who train racehorses who are, you know, their driving force is the, is the horse, and that yeah. is it. I mean, it strikes me for you, yes, you enjoy the horses, and you, you appreciate them, but you love running the business. Well, I think a lot of trainers, not enough emphasis is put on the fact that you're actually running a business. And if your business isn't working, there is no, the horses aren't really worth having if it's costing you. You need to be able to make money from it, and that's the primary source, but you need to have good horses, and you're not going to make any money without having decent horses. So you have to select the right horses, you have to keep it pretty simple, and you have to do the right thing by them. I, I said to you when we were chatting the other day, you're the fastest man to a thousand winners yeah. and you rather self-deprecating you said yeah and I started with nothing you know and, uh, uh, giving all the credit to, to your father quite rightly in many respects because he was a legend of the game and he'd been champion trainer three, three years out of the four before you took over but you were a huge part of the stable at the time how did you two work together how do you work together what's the nature of the relationship like between you well uh, we still work to, he's there every day we still work together you know like we always used to that nothing's changed you know I was involved in that business in the 20 years before I took over and just like I am now and he is still there in the same capacity he was he's there every day and we work together no problem we have our rows they don't last very long but just normal stuff and we get on great he doesn't interfere or tell me what to do but he's always I know when he's telling me what to do and I don't ask and I just go and do it you know he doesn't have to do you believe generally that he is mostly right Oh, he's always right, yeah. Even when he's not right, he's right. <laughs> Simple as that. And what is it, do you think, about him that, that made this, um, this training establishment, this empire, if you like, so strong? How did he do it? Well, I think he built it up in, on a very simple structure. He's buying the right horses, had a lot of nice owners, of which we still have, and it went from strength to strength, and we took it from 
He took over with 20, we've got it to 100, 200, about 240 now. I mean, it sounds easy, but uh, it's, it's not, it's not. not. You easy. have to it's have something. Easy. So what I'm trying to work out is, what from, from a son's point of view do you look at and think, you were amazing the way you did that? Yeah, and you try not to change it too much. You can tweak it and you can polish a few edges. There aren't many edges to be polished and, and just try and keep it going and stay in business. And what did you bring to the party when things started to develop? Because as I said, those three years or four years before the handover, yeah. when you were working so closely together, much as you are now, you know, three trainers' championships in four years, four trainers' championships in five years between you. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, obviously a, a huge compliment to, to us as a team and I hope we have some more. And do you think you bring complementary skills? Do you think there are, are, you I, different, yeah. are you different personalities? I think we're fairly similar in terms of personality, but we we definitely complement each other. And you know, he can speak in two minutes and t- takes me twenty minutes. You know, but that's the thing that you I will learn and come up with as I, as I get more experience. And did, did you think that you could sort of move the move the yard forward in a sense? Were there ways in which you wanted to develop it? Well, I think we wanted to get involved in more of the classic horses, more of the later developing two-year-olds, and I think we're achieving that to a point. But you do get a lot more horses that it takes a time to get going. We were always associated with early two-year-olds. Yeah. And that, you know, if you're not having those early two-year-olds, people go, oh, that's not going like it was. When actually it's going just how we want it to, but we're getting the later two-year-olds, as you're seeing now, as the season goes on. You know, a lot of people say that the, the real two-year-old racing only starts after Royal Ascot. And you've had some lovely late developing two-year-olds coming out just yeah. of late. Yeah, the last few days. Lovely filly at Ascot on Saturday, on Friday, and Mum's Tipple and Man of the Night, uh, Mystery Power, Threat. That's Plenty just, of them. Yeah, yeah, they've got some nice two-year-olds for, for next week as well. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.